My name is Alex, I'm Dr. Alex Campbell, and I'm a senior lecturer at the University of the Sunshine Coast. And I'm one of the key members of the seaweed research group, which I started with colleagues in 2020. And we do all sorts of research about seaweeds, which might seem a little bit weird, but hopefully by the end of this podcast, you are on team seaweed. And we do really diverse types of projects about seaweed aquaculture, so farming it in the sea and in facilities on the land, about its role in the marine environment, where it plays really super important ecological roles, and its role in our lives. So we already use products that have seaweed or parts of seaweed inside them pretty much every day. And seaweed's one of the biggest aquaculture crops in the world and a huge global commodity already. So we do a lot of research around that, how it affects people's health, well-being, livelihoods, and what we can use some of the incredible number of native and endemic seaweeds we have here in Australia, how we could better use those to make a profit and look after the environment and people at the same time. Thank you so much for coming on today. And if you're new to the podcast, this is Talk Eco. And uh, we focus on education, conservation and opportunities for students, uh, the general public and scientists in general. Um, and we're so keen to have Alex onto the podcast today. Um, and you mentioned you're from uh, UniSC and I was wondering when you started uh, undergrad, where, where did you study and maybe where you're from as well um, and, and what were you focusing on? sort of in your early, early career? So um, I was born in the country, actually, a long way from the sea in um, Gamilaroi country, which is from a town called Inverell, which is out near Armadale kind of way. Um, and every summer my family was really privileged and we got to travel to the sea and that's where I felt most at home. And I always knew I wanted to be kind of close to the ocean all the time and, and work in some kind of job that that facilitated that. Um, I moved around a lot as a kid and ended up in Sydney in high school where I studied kind of, you know, all the science subjects. I was okay at maths, not awesome, um, but loved science and English actually, which became really important down the track in an unexpected way. Um, and then I studied my undergrad at UNSW. I kind of forgot my way for a minute and got a scholarship into an environmental engineering degree. Um, at the time, they were really trying to get women into that field. And my dad was an engineer, so he was really stoked. But I just didn't like it. And I found it really hard to motivate myself to do it because it it wasn't my thing. I, you know, it didn't come naturally. And so after a semester of struggling with engineering, I flipped and just went back to um, marine science. So I did a, a Bachelor of Science with a major then in biological oceanography at UNSW and I loved it. And suddenly my marks got really, really good because it wasn't a hassle for me to study because I wanted to, to learn more. And I ended up doing honours at UNSW as well and I loved that. So honours was a really important experience for me. It was one year opportunity just to do research and I always say that I felt like I learned more in that year than I had for my entire degree before that. Um, and it was just great. I loved it as an approach to figuring things out and all of the skills I learned and, and tools I picked up in that year. So honours was a, a really important experience for me, yeah. So went straight into honours from your undergrad. What were you looking at research-wise? 
It was a cool project. So, you know, when I started marine science, I imagined that I would end up working on cool stuff like sharks, maybe whales, although they felt a bit cliche, but, you know, fish, at least like you. But I really liked ecology and that kind of study of understanding how things interacted with each other. Ironically, the kind of mathematical approach to doing that and the hypothesis testing and all of that stuff really appealed to me. It was very logical and I thought it was a really elegant way to start building an understanding of a system uh, or a species and a whole bunch of interactions. So I really liked ecology and doing ecology on big charismatic megafauna like sharks, which I still love, um, just wasn't that feasible, you know, to be able to do the kinds of statistics I was enjoying doing and things like that. So um, I started volunteering in my third year as an undergrad as a diver, which was really easy to do back then. Um, if you had diving qualifications, you could basically just go diving. It was really <laughs> easy, possibly a bit reckless. But yeah, and I started working with my friend who was doing her honours the year before me, looking at the influence of fish grazing on seaweeds in Australia. And she was really lucky. She got to go to New Zealand as well to do her experiments. And it was just a really cool project. She didn't actually find terribly, you know, dramatic results or anything. But again, it was that ecological approach, doing experiments, testing hypotheses, collecting and analysing data. It just really appealed to me. That lab offered me a project the following year, looking at the impacts of grazing by tiny little invertebrates that live on the surface of seaweeds and actually you know whether or not you've looked very closely at seaweeds I'm not sure but if you did you'd see that they're home to hundreds or thousands of tiny little mostly invertebrate animals that we call epifauna because they live on the surface of the seaweeds and there was some research coming from other parts of the world showing that these epifauna the tiny little animals are actually really important in terms of um, maintaining seaweed biomass and, and seagrass biomass in other places too. But we didn't really know what their impact was in Australia. And so my honours supervisor and I designed a method to exclude them. We used a chemical that we put in a plaster matrix that slowly kind of released over time. So we developed that method. Um, and we demonstrated that in Australia, in the seaweed forest that we were looking at, those epifauna, although they were very abundant, they actually didn't have much of an impact at all. And this was quite surprising. And, and after honours, I helped my supervisor redo that experiment kind of on a bigger scale um, over longer periods of time. And again, we found that they just weren't having this effect that we we're expecting. And we published our paper a couple of years after I finished um, honours actually and it was so surprising to all of the other researchers around the world who worked in this space that we arranged a big international workshop um, as a result and got a little bit of funding for that from the university and that led to a big meta-analysis uh, which is still one of my most highly cited papers that we basically reviewed all of the evidence we have for the importance of herbivores in marine ecosystems and that was really cool. And we showed that herbivores are super important in marine ecosystems. And it was really fun to be part of that really big team science project. And that was a really cool impact to have at that honours scale. And what's also cool about that is that method that we developed during my honours year is now used globally um, in this experimental network called Zen. And they're looking at seagrass, so Zostra. And they use that same chemical um, in little plaster blocks to exclude particular part of the epifauna from seagrass to study what their effects are in, in places all over the world. 
and you said that's still being used at the moment. Do you have any sort of involvement with that still? Yeah, not anymore. So I that was my first and only kind of, although I do still study epifauna sometimes, but not been a focus of my research at all since honours. We still oh. use them as, as biodiversity indicators in restoration projects. You mentioned being published out of your honours and uh, you said that took a few few years after completion. Um, yeah. Would you say that's a pretty common thing um, to finish your honours and then maybe keep working in that sort of area and be published a bit later? I wouldn't say it's common, um, but it's definitely an option if you're lucky like me and you continue to be in the same area, I suppose, and you're motivated to, to keep contributing and collaborating. Um, so my my honours project finished. And I think because although we'd done the work really well and in close collaboration with my supervisor, he wasn't like doubting the results or anything. He was just really surprised by them. And so I think for that reason, he wanted to repeat the experiment before publishing, just in case we did get something wrong. You know, as I said, honours is my first time doing research. I could have made a mistake somewhere uh, and I totally understand his um, hesitancy of quickly saying everyone else in the world is wrong and we're right because my honour student did a project. Um, so I was at that stage after honours, I worked for a couple of years as a research assistant in another lab on a different project. Um, so I was able to um, occasionally go diving um, with his team to, to contribute to the next stage of the work. And I did that because I was really interested in, in how it would go. I wanted to know whether I, you know, did I do something wrong and my results weird or, you know, is it right? And, and so I was invested in it. Um, and I was lucky to have the flexibility to be able to do that um, whilst I was employed by someone else. And, yeah, so it wasn't, I wouldn't say it's common, but if if it's an opportunity and it's possible, then, then it's great. A lot of people do manage to publish their honours research kind of at the end of that year um, because it's a completed piece of work. Um, more commonly, though, the work you do in honours contributes to a larger piece of work. And so although you might get a publication out of it, it might not be for a couple of years and you might not be the first author, which is fine. So started at UNSW and during your honours year, were you looking towards keeping in that research space? I never planned to actually. So I think I don't even remember what my plan was, but I got into an honours program and I was interested in giving it a try, having had the volunteering experience during the first few years of my undergrad and I would really recommend that to anyone listening um, who's in that undergraduate phase of their education if you have an opportunity to volunteer it's so valuable uh, and you really get not not because it makes you better at anything but you just get insight into how things work and what research is like and it's not for everybody and there's no right or wrong response to, um, to research, but getting as much experience in different things as you can is so valuable and it's the whole reason we're at uni. So, you know, if you do have an opportunity to volunteer on a couple of different types of research projects, I really recommend you do it because you just, yeah, you learn so much and you see what it's like and, and get a bit of an insight as to whether it's for you or not. So, yeah, I think I never planned to do research as an undergraduate. I'm not sure what my plan was, just, you know, I think still be in ocean as much as possible. And I had a job towards the end of my um, undergraduate 
time as well, which was really fun. And I liked that. I got a job as an aquarist at a marine theme park. So in Sydney, one of the sea life aquariums. And I loved that. That was really fun and and ticked a lot of boxes for me. Um, And I was doing that, you know, I started volunteering there as well and then got a job, which was really cool and was doing that casually while I finished uni. And I look back now and think that was really good to have both of those experiences happening at the same time. So getting paid to dive and play with marine animals and feed them and talk to people about how important, you know, the environment was and things like that and do research and actually contribute to what we understood about the importance of the environment. They were great things to be doing. In your experience, do you think it helps you when you're looking at multiple projects going on or just being able to organise yourself? Oh, it's so important. And it's one of the soft skills that I think employers expect you to have when you finish with a university degree um, is that you've demonstrated that you can manage multiple courses with different kind of assessment schedules And most people need to work a little bit at least while they're at uni, right, to pay for their lives. And um, some some people work a lot, others work just a little bit. Um, But, yeah, it's absolutely super important. I definitely never had a choice about working while I was at uni. And I know many others don't as well. But, yeah, it is, you know, employers look at what qualification you have, a a Bachelor of, of Science or Ecology or whatever it is you're doing, Um, But also those soft skills are super important. And if you start to look at job descriptions, which I recommend everyone do as well, the kinds of jobs you're interested in applying, um, have a look and see what the criteria are, so what they're looking for in candidates, and think about how you can communicate how your experience as a student also working um, has given you those skills because they won't be courses you've done. They'll be things you've had to do to finish those courses at the same time as all of your other responsibilities. So, yeah, it's super important and, and important to be able to articulate how you've done that. So if we continue on now from your honours, um, moving towards uh, completing a PhD, was there a break at all from honours moving in? Yes, yes, I needed a break. As I said, I worked the whole way through my undergrad degree. I was really tired and felt like I'd just been working really hard um, for years, which I had. And so I got a job as a research assistant working on a project that was funded by the US Navy at a time. And it was looking to use um, bioactive compounds produced by a red seaweed to create natural anti-fouling paint to put on ship's hulls. Because I don't know if, if you know this, but um, fouling, so the growth of marine animals and plants on the on the hull of ships slows them down and it actually contributes in a really devastatingly significant way to how much fuel ships use as yeah. they cross the seas um, on a daily basis. And so one of the things that, you know, I think people do still on ship hulls is, is coat them with heavy metals-based anti-fouling paint. And whilst very effective, the heavy metals obviously bioaccumulate in marine sediments uh, and organisms and cause all sorts of environmental and then all human health problems down the track as well. So there's been quite a push to find natural alternatives. And, and so I was working on a project looking at compounds produced by seaweed as potential. And, and my job just involved running a whole bunch of bioassays essentially. So doing um, exposing different types of fouling organisms to different chemicals and reporting back on which ones worked best. So I did that for a couple of years and I was also still working casually at the aquarium. 
And I was also, I think, working on a bar, on a, a cruise boat on the harbour, Sydney Harbour, um, and also waitressing for a catering company. So I was saving up money um, because I really wanted to travel before I mm. settled down and committed to anything serious like a PhD. And so mm. I worked for two years and then I went travelling for two years and it was awesome. Obviously, the way you grew up moving around, do you yeah. think that had a, had a bit of an impact with um, wanting to see more of the world and um, yeah. any particular places you wanted to go? Yeah, I moved around Australia a lot and my dad had a job that took him overseas a lot um, and we never went because it was, you know, the 80s and the 90s and most of the places he was going were not tourist destinations. Mm. Um, but it really fascinated me. He would come back with lots of stories about different cultures and foods mm. and, you know, places and environments and I re I just knew I wanted to explore a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, as soon as I had that opportunity um, to have saved up enough money to, to take off for a little while, and I was, I felt like I'd achieved pretty well with, you know, honours and, and my degree and, and had some work experience behind me as well. So I thought it was a good time to take a break. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I loved it. It was really good just having a complete break from all of it. And it was during that time um, that, you know, upon reflection, I thought I did want to keep doing research. So I was like, well, I'd like to just travel forever, but I can't afford that. have to work. Uh, and if I have to work, then I want to do something that I feel is important and that I like and that inspires me. And so for me at that time, having had the different types of experience that I'd had, research was the way forward and the next step for me then for a research career was a PhD. Where was the first place you wanted to go on on your list of traveling? I wanted to go to Asia because it's so mm. close and so diverse um, and yeah my dad spent a bit of time in China he'd been to Thailand to Vietnam and um also spent a lot of time in India, um, which I've still never been to India. But, yeah, so I flew to Bangkok and then I overlanded um, without much of a plan uh, through, yeah, lots of different parts of Thailand, Cambodia, from the south of Vietnam up to the north into China. And then I caught a train that took me all the way over to Moscow. So that's the Trans-Siberian Railway. It was very, very cool. Everything slowly turned. I was in Asia about six months and then everything slowly on that train turned from being very Asian to very European. Like it was a pretty amazing journey. And then Moscow was like the furthest away I'd ever been from home ever, but it felt so kind of familiar after six months in, in Asia. And then I... Um, Travelled around Europe a bit, ran out of money, got a job in Ireland, worked there for a year um, before slowly travelling back home. Nice. Awesome. Um, so finished up uh, your travels or those travels um, and was the goal always to move back to Australia to look at continuing on with research? I was in touch with the supervisor I'd worked with on the biofouling project while I was away and he had some cool new ideas for projects and reached out and asked me if I wanted to put in an application for a scholarship to start the following year and that aligned with my plans. I was ready to return home and, and start doing something you know useful with my time again and yeah so I put in a, a scholarship application I'm going to betray my age here at the end of 2005 to start my PhD in 2006 at UNSW again. 
So sticking with uh, the one uni all the way through, um, did you finish your PhD at UniSW? I did, yeah. And for me at the time, that seemed sensible because I knew the supervisor, I knew how he worked, and I knew the university. And I'd had by that stage four years not being a student. Um, So I thought at least if I'm going back to some familiarity, then that could be helpful. So the particular... Um, research that you applied for um, PhD scholarship did that end up being the project you worked on for those three years? It morphed completely so I put in a scholarship to look at the co-evolution of um, sacoglossins of like little sea slugs that live on a particular seaweed called calerpa um, and they can consume this compound that the calerpa produces which is quite toxic to other things. And I just thought that was a cool project. And I remember my supervisor saying, yeah, let's write that and let's kick around what you actually end up doing once you get here. So at that stage, it was really like, let's get you a scholarship for a project that is about ecology um, and, you know, we'll go from there. Um, By the time I started, I guess it was six months later, and I'd been doing a bit of reading to get started. I'd been chatting to another um, potential supervisor and we'd kind of changed the project a little bit then and when I had my first meeting with my primary supervisor he said oh look we've just got this project um, a new one to look at disease and climate change in seaweeds we've noticed this thing that happens to this species of seaweeds we've been working on for ages and we think it's happening more when the water's warm And we think it could be like a climate mediated disease. And I'm just so interested in even just that first few sentences that he said. So then I remember I was reading about Project A, which was more co-evolutionary, those epifauna um, and the seaweeds and how they kind of evolved to have this, you know, general or very um, specific relationship. And I was reading about climate change and disease in marine ecosystems and seaweeds. And it became really clear very quickly that option A um, wasn't going to keep me motivated and interested for three to five years, whereas option B I found super interesting and I was really excited to really deep dive into that and figure out what was going on. So after a couple of months of reading, I told my supervisor which project I wanted to focus on. He was really happy and we just got started. How important was it to study something that you were interested in? I think it's super important. Like at least at the beginning, you want to be extremely excited about what it is you're researching. And, you know, there will be times in the three to five years you spend doing this that you're not super motivated (laughs) because you're a human and things don't always go well. Um, So I think you at least want to be starting from that place of really high energy, high engagement you know, this extreme passion and motivation to want to understand, to want to learn, to want to do the work, um, to be the person that figures this out, basically. Studying for a PhD, was there a balance between um, obviously a huge component of writing, but also was there a heavy field side of it? I was, yeah, and that was a consideration as well. So the project that we ended up designing had a lot of field work and a lot of lab work and obviously yeah everyone's doing a lot of analysis and writing um so and I really liked that balance so I I loved 
the big field campaigns we do. But then it was really nice to have a break from them and and do a heap of lab work. And then when the lab work got annoying, it was good to step back and and write things up and, you know, keep track of where we're at. So that balance was really important to me. I find even now in my career as I become increasingly desk bound and and more writing focused, I really miss the field work and the lab work. So I, I still try, you know, once every month or two to just volunteer on one of my student projects or something and, and come out in the lab uh, into the field or spend a day in the lab just to stay connected because, yeah, I, it is what I really like about what we do um, and also where I have all my best ideas, you know, is under the water looking at the things that I'm studying in their natural habitat. I've always found that very inspiring. By the end of it, were you still enjoying what you were doing? Yes. Um, the the Hesitant, part, yes. Yeah, the, the writing part, the last bit of a PhD is super stressful. There's no other way to explain it. Um, but it is also this really necessary thing you've got to do. Um, and some people sail through it and others have a tricky time. My PhD took a bit longer, um, so I think I was actively I think it was probably five years from when I started to when I handed in my PhD part of that was because of um, weather events that destroyed you know massive experiments that we had in in the water um, or prevented us from going out for months at a time Um, and part of it was I you know I got sick so I had a few months off basically towards the end where I I couldn't do anything so um, that those two things pushed it out to be about yeah, four and a half to five years, I think, which back then was a bit more acceptable than it is now. There was a tendency for supervisors, you know, in the 1990s and, and before to take advantage a little bit of students on these, you know, very low scholarships to work, you know, for a long time on their PhD when they had more than enough data to finish. So that was a thing. And that's why now we're a bit more strict about how much time people spend on their PhDs and, you know, having them finish in a, in a timely way so that then they can earn the type of salary they deserve and have earned to do that kind of work from then on. So the ocean, you know, is not always your friend and sometimes, it works really solidly against you. So we've had a number of big experiments over the course of my career just disappear um, because of a storm. Um, I've also had an octopus one time just sabotage me. So we we put out all these little nails in the subtitle to mark particular seaweed individuals. Um, and I came back a week later to check on them and all of the nails were in this weird pile, <laughs> you know, in the middle of the area that I'd pegged them all out in. And I noticed that the pile was in the front of an octopus lair and it had just liked the pink flagging tape, I think, that we'd put on all the nails and created a sculpture out of them, which was really annoying but also impressive. Uh, We had to do it again in in an area a bit further away and hope that we didn't bother the aesthetics for any octopus. Um, But, yeah, there was a lot of storms. I remember we were studying the impacts of different light levels on disease occurrence in a particular seaweed garden. And there was a huge storm and everything got covered in sand, you know, so we were studying these intricate little, you know, macro micro interactions and solar radiation. And then just a big thing of sand just got dumped on everything and killed it all, you know? So that was funny and humbling. Um, We've set up huge restoration trials 
that yeah style a big storms rolled through and just completely destroyed everything um so those moments are demoralizing i find you've got to give yourself like 24 hours to feel sad and then you know just got to keep going you know it's just about why you're doing it again and it's just the ocean reminding you that you know we don't know anything and it's cute that we're trying to figure it out but it'll always be a mystery And that's one of the reasons I love doing what I do because it is working in this incredible environment that's so wild still. And that's a huge part of the buzz for me. And yeah, you know, you just keep trying. And and I guess failure is such an important part of learning and success. You know, if things work well the first time, every time, you know, I don't know, it's, it's too easy. You've got to fail. You've got to suffer to grow and change and improve. And so it's just part of learning and so whenever you're still motivated to learn and and grow then you're going to fail and you need to yeah give yourself space to feel bad about it but then you've really got to turn it around and remember that this is why you're at the forefront of something here it's not going to be easy it's not going to work the first time and that really is what research is is doing stuff that no one's ever done before to help figure out how everything works and how we can, you know, live our lives better. Appreciate how honest and real it is as well. It's not perfect. It's actually, um, it's, it's, it's raw. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There are challenges. And um, and that's why honest is so good because you either yeah. love it or you hate it and you've got exactly. one to kind of, and you've just got to be honest with yourself about it doesn't mean you're smart or not smart or anything if you don't like it. It's just a really specific way of doing things and it appeals to certain people and having that one year kind of opportunity or even an SRP, um, you know, having an opportunity to do research for a little while is so great because it is such a weird thing to do in so many ways. So completed a PhD. Obviously you're at the Sunshine Coast now. I finished my PhD in 2011. And then I, I had two postdocs, um, which actually was also at UNSW. So I obviously really liked it there. Um, and I got my first postdoc because my PhD work had gone very well and had formed the basis of a new ARC discovery proposal, which was um, successful just as I was finishing my PhD, which was good timing. And I mentioned to my supervisor that if there was a postdoc in there, I'd be really interested. And obviously I had really useful um, experience because it was, you know, on the same stuff that I'd been working on for the previous five years. So I got a postdoc doing that. Um, And then during that time, we started to do some seaweed restoration. So one of the things we started to notice after diving in the same places over and over again for five years is that a lot of stuff was disappearing and things are really changing and we were measuring the changes in ocean water temperature at the same time and it was really clear that that some of those things were linked and in particular some colleagues um, including my supervisor realized that this one species crayweed which had been really common in Sydney until the 1970s had completely disappeared so it was still north of Sydney and it was still south of Sydney but it was gone from the metropolitan coastline of Sydney And so whilst I was working on this disease project, my supervisor kind of started to steer me into this other project, like why has it gone? What happens if we put it back? And we did um, quite a few years really of research looking at, you know, what happens if we put this seaweed species back? And 
it survived and it reproduced and then we thought maybe we can restore it and so we put in another proposal for a project to do a trial restoration of this species which is Phyllosprecomosa or crayweed and that project was successful and that led to my second postdoc um, which was mostly based at the Sydney Institute of Marine Science but also the University of New South Wales um, and I was yeah, doing that, really enjoying that project. We started then a big um, research program called Operation Crayweed, which I co-founded with a couple of colleagues, Adriana Verges and Ziggy Marzanelli, and my supervisor, Peter Steinberg. And that has been a really successful project that's still going today. Um, and we've managed to restore half a dozen reefs um, in the Sydney metropolitan area with that seaweed species now, which is really cool. Um, during that time, I had um, my baby, so I had twin boys in 2015, and then I had like a career break after that. Um, I was a little bit busy. I think I had fantasies about being able to work a little bit and have two babies, which, um, yeah, spoiler alert, not possible. <laughs> so I ended up having um, nearly a year off and then returning to part-time work. Um, after that, I still had a little bit of time left on my postdoc. And then that then things got a bit scary because my postdoc was running out. I wasn't sure if I could do full-time work. Um, I knew I probably couldn't work quite as much as I had been previously um, because I have responsibilities outside of work from then. Um, and I started looking around at all sorts of different jobs, basically, outside of academia, um, and I saw a, a lectureship advertised at the University of the Sunshine Coast. I didn't know much about the Sunshine Coast. I knew almost nothing about the university, but I put in an application and as I said, it was one of quite a few different applications I was putting in, you know, in those last few months of my postdoc at UNSW. And yeah, I originally got, I didn't even get an interview initially for the lectureship actually. And then quite a few months went by and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then I got an email saying that the candidate that had been offered the job had declined it and that they would like to interview me. And so that was very exciting. And I came up for an interview at the end of 2017. And academic interviews are quite full on. You have to give a presentation. Um, you meet with a panel of people. So it's you and like six other, well, six more senior academics looking at you and asking you a bunch of questions it goes for a couple of hours at most universities too you have to go and have meetings with with students with other academics you know it's it's pretty full-on process that can take a couple of days uh, so I went through that and then was really stoked when they offered me the job and so that would have been in September October 2017 and we moved up in February 2018. I noticed that you're the recipient of a few pretty prestigious acknowledgements and was wondering whereabouts those sort of occurred. Yeah, oh, they mean a lot to me. It's a great privilege to, to be acknowledged for what you do, especially when you just like it so much. It feels like almost, you know, too much. Um, so the Tall Poppy Award I received just after my PhD in 2012 and Tall Poppy is all about science communication and outreach. So the kind of thing you're doing now, Eddie, which is so important. Um, and actually, really, the Superstars of STEM Award, which I received in 2020, that was the same thing. It's for outreach 
communicating science more broadly. So while I was a PhD student, a couple of my friends from undergrad had started this program. Uh, one of them was a jazz musician and this radio station was a community radio jazz station, which was really cool. And it was just run by musicians. So everyone was a volunteer and they wanted a weekly science program that went for half an hour. So after a little while, my friends who'd set it up couldn't do it anymore. So myself and another friend um, took over. And so we were researching, writing, presenting and producing this show every week. And it was hilarious. It was so much fun. And we just interviewed all our friends doing PhDs about their research and occasionally, you know, more established scientists who'd agree <laughs> to come on. And it was so much fun. We just had a really good time doing it and ended up doing it for quite a few years. And that's also still going. It's been this beautiful um, thing that we've passed from PhD student to PhD student. So as people have finished their PhDs and gotten real jobs where you don't have time for stuff like that, really, um, we've passed it on. And it's still going, Boiling Point Science on 89.7 FM, which is um, East Side Radio. You can find it online. It's a great show and it just showcases the research of, of PhD students mostly in Sydney, but, but other places too. Um, at the same time, I was writing a column for a monthly community magazine in Sydney called Beast Magazine. And I don't really remember how that came about. I think they got in touch or I got in touch with them and I just thought it would be a good way of maximising the impact of the, the stories we were talking about on the radio program. So every month I'd kind of pick one and write a little editorial about it. And it was usually something environmental, but maybe health-related or some interesting science thing. And that was really great too. So every month I'd write a column um, for this magazine that, that got published and it just really increased the number of people in that area, Eastern Sydney, um, who were, you know, hearing a little bit about something science-y at least once a week or once a month. And it was really great. It was all, you know, volunteer. No one paid any of us to do any of these things, but it was a really great experience. And in recognition of, of that outreach work really is why I got the Tall Poppy Award. And, yeah, more recently um, the, the Superstar program was for a lot of the outreach we did as part of some of our research. So for Operation Crayweed in particular, we did a huge amount of outreach and science communication around that. I've continued to write, you know, articles for all sorts of different magazines and blog uh, and do social media posts and things. So the Superstars of STEM program is amazing and it is to elevate women in STEM in particular who are still very underrepresented in most disciplines, particularly at the more senior levels. And so the idea is to, I guess, upskill women in STEM with some really great communication skills so that they are ready to be in front of the media. And so when journalists need to talk to an expert, they're more likely to run into a, a female expert and at least have some representation of, of women as experts in the media. And we also, um, as part of the program, went and did a lot of talks to schools about our careers and what we did and things like that, again, to to elevate women in STEM at that younger um, 
level that, you know, there's this idea that you can't be what you can't see. And so if you're a little girl and all you see on the news is men speaking about things as experts, then you don't think it's a thing you can do. And so it's really important to have women there as well so that little girls who are just as capable of becoming scientists or engineers or mathematicians or technologists, um, they see that it's possible and, and then consider it in a real way when they're making decisions. It's changed a lot, which is great. There's still a lot to do. But um, we know when I was an undergraduate in the School of um, Biological Sciences, as it was then at UNSW, there was one female professor and that's it. There were no other females in the school. All of the other lecturers were males. And so, you know, I didn't think a lot about it at the time because it was really normal. Um, you know, that was in the 2000s. <laughs> it was pretty normal for there not to be many women in, in those high-level positions. Um, but it certainly probably subconsciously affected me. It changed while I was an undergrad. They hired a lot of women um, academics which was great. And um, one of them in particular was Professor Emma Johnson, who's now fairly famous science-wise. She's been on a bunch of documentaries um, and she just moved from being Dean of Science at UNSW for the last few years to the University of Sydney, which is cool. Um, and she's been um, one of many very inspiring role models for me. Um, so definitely there's been a huge change, but it's not happened organically. It's happened because of programs like Superstars of STEM and because of people like Emma who've really blazed trails and pushed and pushed and served on numerous committees and given lots of talks and worked really tirelessly to make those changes happen. So it's been wonderful to see that change and to have played a small role in it. As I said, there's still a long way to go. It's still really hard for women to come back from career interruptions um, and then to maintain productivity that's required with significant caring responsibilities outside of work. Um, and there's still a lot of structural changes that need to happen to facilitate diversity and inclusivity in that way. So it's nice to say that we want to be gender um, you know, not neutral, but gender, you know, that we want to have diversity um, in our gender equity, um, but things need to change to facilitate that. It's harder for people who've had career interruptions and have ongoing caring responsibilities to perform to the level that's required, you know, as, as university academics than it is for people who don't have those things still. So there's still a long way to go. Um, and then diversity is off, obviously a lot more than just gender diversity as well. So um, it's it's good to see things changing um, and to continue to help work towards making those changes. Absolutely. And appreciate um, how much it is changing. And then also how you said um, there's still a long way to go. There's, there's still, still a long way to go. Happen. And, and all of the women, you know, who you see, not all, but many of the women you see in these positions now, you know, have a lot on their plate outside of work as well. So, and they've had to work harder to get to where they are. And I think it's important to recognise that.
moving out of PhDs and that research side of it into more of an academic role and looking towards taking on students. How has that changed for you, sort of moving from a research focus to a a student-enabling focus? It's definitely been a shift. And I guess when I was a postdoctoral research associate or fellow at UNSW, I had the opportunity there to co-supervise Um, high degree by research students, so PhD and master's students and honours during that time, which was really great experience. So, you know, with obviously the the primary supervision of my supervisor, um, that was awesome experience. And and I learned, you know, what to do, what not to do, how every single student obviously is completely different to everybody else and requires a really different approach typically. Um, And yeah, how you can facilitate and support um, rather than just doing it all yourself. So it's definitely different. I still do a fair bit of the research, I suppose, but, yeah, I have less and less time. I've seen a few posts and mentions over the past little while just talking about PhD opportunities within the seaweed group and where you're looking to move and maybe um, any opportunities that you're looking at, whether that be um, SRPs or PhDs and um, where, where you're looking for that to move? Yeah, well, we have a couple of programs of research in the Seaweed Research Group, I suppose. The one I lead is the Environment Program. And so that's really looking at seaweeds in the sea. Uh, and we're interested in the ecology of those seaweeds, the restoration of seaweeds that we've lost, and also the restorative aquaculture of seaweeds. So, you know, what kind of environmental um, benefits do farming seaweed provide and we're increasingly also interested in you know how seaweed farming or restoration affects the communities around the coastlines of areas in which we're doing those things so that's probably the, the program of research I lead this semester I have a couple of SRP students but always interested in more for kind of the summer period um, and and next year Definitely have space for an honours student at the moment. And the round for PhD students um, scholarships has just opened. So, you know, if anyone's interested and wants to come and talk about a PhD, I'd be be super keen. We have a couple of projects starting over the next year, looking at seaweed restoration on the Sunshine Coast and in southeast Queensland a bit more broadly, um, which I'm really excited about. We also have a really good aquaculture research program and that's led by Professor Nick Paul and that's really all about the farming of seaweeds at scale but also the use of seaweeds and their products um, down down the line. So we have quite a lot of chemistry research projects around looking at the the compounds that are produced by seaweeds and, and maybe what we can use them for or what they're already used for. And what types of seaweeds we could farm here in southeast Queensland, where conditions are pretty much ideal for seaweed farming. Uh, we have Professor Scott Cummins and Dr. Min Zhao, who are kind of omics specialists. So Scott leads our gene expression and proteomics um, research programs, and Min is a computational biologist. So he does amazing bioinformatics and we've actually just all sequenced the genome of a fairly famous red seaweed called Asparagopsis taxiformis. And so Min's obviously led most of that genome sequencing work. 
And then we have another arm of research that's all about nutrition, dietetics, and livelihood. So how can growing seaweeds help boost the health and livelihoods of the communities who grow them? And we have a number of projects that I'm involved in too, actually, all around Australia and overseas, especially in the Pacific, looking at how seaweed farming can help you know, bring people up out of poverty, increase and improve their nutrition and you know, give them an income. How many PhD students have you got at the moment? Yeah, at the moment. So I personally, I'm, I'm the principal supervisor of two PhD students and I co-supervise two others. And so they're all um, doing really different projects. So one of my um, one of my kind of principal students is Tom, and he's looking at molecular interactions between a particular red seaweed and other organisms. And he's looking at kind of how these interactions affect their, the genes they're expressing, uh, and then the, the proteins they synthesize and the metabolites they produce as well. And he's looking at how, you know, that's all in the context of if we start farming this species in high densities in places, does it matter what else is there? How, how is what is already there or what's being farmed next to it going to affect the growth or the chemistry of this seaweed? Another one of my students is looking at the social and environmental benefits of the restorative aquaculture of seaweed. And she's looking across a number of other projects that we have at the moment and, and working out how having seaweed um, in a place where you didn't have seaweed before, how that changes the biodiversity of that ecosystem and what people who may benefit from the seaweed farm or restored seaweed patch being there, what they think about it and how we can communicate what we're doing to better um, enhance their understanding of seaweeds in the sea and seaweed farming in Australia. Um, and that's Shelby um, who's doing that work. We also have Sylvia who's looking at the microorganisms and the chemistry of a particular seaweed and she's comparing a couple of different strains that we have in culture that we've had for a number of years. That's Sylvia's project and Asri's also comparing the growth rates and chemistry of some different strains with a real kind of aquaculture context there for, again informing the, the farming of that species which is got a lot of global interest at the moment mm. so they're kind of the main students I have a couple of SRP students um, starting this semester and they're working with me towards a, a restoration trial of uh, sargassum seaweeds on the Sunshine Coast where we used to have seaweed forests until about the 1970s when all of this urbanization started happening at scale um, and we seem to have lost the seaweed forests at around that time so we want to see, first of all, whether it's possible to bring them back um, and also whether that's something that people want because what we're getting in, instead of the seaweeds out there now are corals, lots of corals growing on the rocky reefs. Some of them are subtropical species. Others are, you know, species from the Great Barrier Reef that are coming down potentially further than they were previously. Um, and so we want to see, yeah, can we put them back? And is that what people want, basically? And we're also doing some work on, you know, how citizen scientists who help us put them back, what they get out of that experience and, and whether it boosts their own health as well. And trying to make some connections between our own health and the health of the marine environment just where we live. So, yeah, two, two SRP students working with me on that project. Mm. 
and so much variety between all of those projects, which is really exciting. Cool stuff at the moment going from the very social science all the way through to very hardcore molecular biology. And I like that, that diversity all the time to, to stay excited. Um, are you excited for where the research is going and sort of branching out? I, I grew up in Brisbane in the Moreton Bay region and noticed some of your work in Kwandamooka Sea Country and obviously broadening it across southeast Queensland. Yeah, I'm really excited about the direction we're going at the moment. We've um, had a great opportunity to work with Kwandamooka Aboriginal Corporation and some other partners on that project to look at whether farming seaweed in Moreton Bay in Kondamuka is feasible um, and whether it would do kind of other good things to the environment, which we, we were able to demonstrate it would. Um, so that was really great and we hope that it will kind of continue that project. So we kind of have completed the proof of concept, if you like now, and really happy with the outcomes there. We've recently started working with Cubby Cubby um, here, a bit closer to home. Um, on the seaweed restoration that I mentioned earlier, which is really exciting. So I'm very excited to be engaging and partnering with traditional owners in their sea country and working on projects that could lead to, you know, improved livelihoods for the community and income, uh, at, for, you know, from activities in water that improve water quality, improve biodiversity, and then that way are really like caring for country. So I'm really excited that there's a possibility that the research we do in, in the seaweed research group will have these positive impacts both in the sea and the environment that means so much to me, but also to the communities of people who've always looked after them. The overarching aim of the seaweed research group is to solve problems with seaweeds and we're looking at environmental problems but also social problems and economic problems. And so we work with a really broad range of partners, both government funding agencies, big industry, small to medium enterprises, family-owned businesses, and increasingly community groups to figure out what the problems that need to be solved are and how we can use seaweeds to solve them. We are working at the moment with Australia's largest aquaculture company, Tassel, uh, who were interested in how seaweed could help them meet and you know exceed their regulatory requirements in terms of how much nitrogen is released from their prawn farms as well as being salmon farmers Tassel is also now Australia's largest prawn farmer and one of their biggest prawn farms is up in Proserpine in North Queensland during 2020 and 2022 we've been growing seaweeds in their settlement ponds so they already are very good at meeting and exceeding their regulatory requirements by exceeding I mean they put less than they need to um, out into the kind of receiving environment. But by growing seaweed in the settlement ponds, we've been able to really help them do that more effectively. And they've become overnight really in this project, Australia's biggest seaweed producers. We've grown hundreds and hundreds of tonnes of seaweed on their farm. And that's really exciting. So now it's just about finding a, a market for that seaweed uh, the primary point of that seaweed really was to remove more nutrients from the wastewater stream which it's done and now they potentially have a new product as well so that's been really exciting um, in the Morton Bay project we worked with urban utilities who are the you know water treatment facility in Brisbane and so they were interested in restoration type of projects they could do 
that naturally remove more nitrogen from the water. A lot of nitrogen gets produced around cities and towns because that's where people are and we, we produce nitrogenous waste ourselves as do agricultural processes to grow our food. Um, and so wastewater treatment, a lot of that is about removing nitrogen and, and phosphorus out of the water. And seaweeds are really good at doing that, um, as I've just mentioned on the prawn farm. And so by growing them in Moreton Bay, we can reduce the overall amount of nitrogen in the water. That's a really good thing. And we grew the seaweed on, a, on an oyster farm, which was owned and, and managed by a family. Um, and Kwandamuka um, were partners on that project too, I think just interested to see whether it would work. Uh, and, and if so, potentially something that kayak that Kondamuka Yulabarabi Aboriginal Corporation could do uh, as a way of generating an income and caring for sea country. In wrapping up, what are, what are your personal hopes for um, moving towards uh, issues of climate change or um, even just sustainability? Do you have any particular messages you'd want to you'd share or encourage for for students studying this or everyday people and, and how they can sort of focus towards those issues? I'm, you know, climate change is very worrying uh, and it's something that I pendulum swing between feeling quite hopeful about and feeling quite desperate about. The science is very scary. I don't think the message is still being received well enough in terms of how scary it is and how little time we have left to make changes. So I think when I think about that, I think about, you know, my kids and the fact that I want to be able to show them all of the things I've done to try to help and fix and make things better and communicate. So I'd say being a scientist is one of the few jobs where you actually feel a bit empowered to do something and although it does get depressing sometimes, it's really important to keep going. And I think putting yourself out there, talking to people, making podcasts like this, talking to media, writing a blog, whatever it is, it helps. Even if you kind of just change one or two people's minds, that's really worth it, you know. And if all of the scientists do that, then we're on our way there. And being vocal, I think, is a really important responsibility. Um, and one that we just have to keep doing because, you know, decisions are still being made that fly in the face of the science and all of the recommendations. And so the job's not done. We've got to keep doing it. I like working with industry at the moment because I like to see the fairly rapid translation of the science and what it recommends into practice. I, you know, was getting frustrated by the lag between science publication um, and translation in policy. But again, I think there's really proactive things that as scientists we can do to get more involved in policy decisions and things like that. And, and just recently there's been a whole bunch of STEM ambassadors named who are working directly with um, parliamentarians to try to achieve better incorporation of STEM into policy. Absolutely. And I guess it's about pushing that forward and, and being the change you want to see. 
caring about your research today, it's so clear what your goals are and how clear you are on where you're moving in your research. Keep the conversation happening and get updates about octopus stealing seaweed beds <laughs> and, and all sorts of weather events. It's so appreciated to be able to make this research accessible and put it in a light from not only a scientific point of view, but also industry and the social aspects of it. And it, and it all is so important to moving towards those common goals and, and making research accessible for everyone. I agree. No, thanks very much for having me, Eddie, and um, congratulations on the podcast. Keep it up.